If you have a copy of God's Word, I'm going to ask that you would turn with me to Luke chapter 17, beginning in verse 32. Um, And that's really just the focus. Scripture is Luke 17, verse 32. I've often heard it said that the shortest verse in the Bible, particularly in the King James Version of the Bible, is Jesus wept, right? Where Jesus weeps, he cries over his dear friend, Lazarus, who dies while he's absent, and then he later resurrects him. Well, if that is the shortest verse in the Bible, then this may be the second shortest verse in the Bible. Let me see if I can get it without looking. Luke 17.32, remember Lot's wife. Got it. Woo! Woo! Who said that memorizing scripture was difficult? It only took me two days to get that one. Yeah, anyway. Um, but, yeah, this is it's just three little words, but some of the most powerful words in scripture. I don't know if any of you are like me and like a good movie, a good thriller, um, something that where there's some action, where there's some danger, things like that. And oftentimes when I watch those types of movies... There's something that people do in those movies, which is the very same thing that Lot's wife does in the story, and it's that they look back. You watch the movie, they're being chased by the bad guy through the woods, and what do they do? They look back, and they stumble, and they fall, and and the bad guy catches up to them, and you're screaming at the TV like, please stop looking back, just run. Focus on the goal that's in front of you. Well... That's the story here today, as we remember Lot's wife. Um, These are some of the most powerful words in Scripture because Jesus said them, right? Anytime Jesus tells us anything, it's important. And if Jesus tells us to remember someone, then you better believe that he has a good reason for us to remember that person. In fact, anything that I see in the Bible that's in red that I know that Jesus has said, I actually pay a lot more attention to than maybe some of the other stuff. Because we know that Jesus has something for us there. Actually, when Jesus says the word remember in that verse, that word means to pay heed to, to learn a lesson from. And I believe Lot's wife has a lesson for us here this morning in 2023. And how appropriate is this, I believe, to think about this idea of not looking back, even on the heels of Chad's wonderful sermon about numbering our days and paying attention to the times and being sure that we are using that time well for the Lord. Well, as we look at Luke chapter 17, verse 32, let me give you a little bit of context. So Luke 17, verses 26 through 32 are part of Jesus' response to the Pharisees who asked him a question in verse 20. They said, when will the kingdom of God come? It would be safe to assume that these Pharisees asked Jesus this question in a very disrespectful way. That's the Pharisees' way, isn't it? They're always questioning Jesus with this hint and this air of kind of disrespect every time they ask him the question. Well, They were asking him this question, when would the kingdom come? Because 
for them and many people of that time, knowing the Old Testament prophecies about the coming of the Messiah, they were expecting Jesus to show up right away in all of his power and all of his glory right away. Actually, in rabbinic teachings of that time, that was something that they believed as well, is that in his first coming, instead of what we know, his second coming, he comes back with all of that fire and power and fury, right? But they were expecting it right now. Spurgeon says, while the Lord was yet on the earth, on earth, the days of the Son of Man were but lightly esteemed. So they they didn't really care for Jesus, right? The Pharisees spoke of them with a sneer and demanded when the kingdom of God should come. As much as to say, is this the kingdom? Is this the coming of thy promised kingdom? Are these fishermen and peasants thy courtiers? Are these the days for which prophets and kings waited so long. So the Pharisees are looking at Jesus, asking him this question. And he's looking also, they're looking also at the disciples and they're going, this ragtag group of individuals are supposed to be the coming of the kingdom. This guy, like he's already done things actually, right? Jesus has already healed people. He's already restored sight to folks, all of this, but that's not what they wanted. They wanted Jesus to come and overthrow the Roman empire. They wanted him to go bust some heads and move some things out of the way so that they could rule and reign right now. So they sarcastically asked Jesus that question in verse 20. And in verse 21, Jesus basically tells them, the kingdom of God is actually standing right in front of you. The kingdom of God is actually so close to them that they could touch it because the king was in their presence. They're standing in the midst and the presence of the king of kings, the creator of all things, but they don't have eyes to see. So Jesus tells them that the kingdom is already in your midst. And it actually says in the scripture, if you go there, um, that the kingdom of God is in you. And that doesn't mean what Like you could look at that and think some new age stuff when Jesus says that, but that's not what Jesus meant. He's not into the new age and everybody has God inside of them. And all that is not what that scripture was saying. Jesus was saying that I am in your midst. The king is right here. The kingdom is right here because the king is right here. And so from here, Jesus quickly transitions into an intimate conversation with his disciples over the next few verses where he warns them that after he has left the earth, there will be a time where the disciples, where the people of God will long for his return. He tells them, you're going to yearn for a day when I'm standing in front of you, where I've walked with you. You're going to yearn to see these days again. That time will come And people are going to try to trick you. He told them that Satan is going to attempt to trick you by sending false messiahs who are claiming that they are me, that that they are the one who is to return and to come and to conquer the nations. And Jesus said, don't pay attention to them. They're liars. Jesus warns them right away. Don't pay attention to those men. They're liars. Because guess what? When I come back, it won't be hidden and secret in some little small room It'll be like a flash of lightning in the air, is what the scripture says. He says it'll be be so grand that everybody's going to see it, and nobody's going to miss 
my return. So pay no attention to these false messiahs. He says, don't believe these copycats. Then in verse 25, Jesus tells them what he's been telling them all along, that the Messiah must suffer first, which is, of course, a reference to the cross in which Jesus would go to. You see, they wanted the crown, but not the cross. Jesus is telling them that, no, first I must suffer. First, I must go to the cross and then the crown will come. Then the glory will come. And just a side note, aren't we like this? We want to skip the cross and go straight to the crown. I know I don't want to suffer. If I'm going to be honest with you, right? I'd love to jump and skip over all of the pain. But Jesus told us to pick up our cross and follow him. And so we must get the cross if we are going to get the crown. If they had been listening to Jesus throughout his ministry and really understood what had been prophesied concerning the Messiah, they would have known that the cross had to come before the crown, which now brings us to verse 26 through 32, which will be our focus for the first portion of this message. Let's read that. Luke 17, verse 26. Just as it was in the days of Noah, so will it be in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise, just as it was in the days of Lot, they were eating and drinking and buying and selling, planting and building. But on the day when Lot went out from Sodom, fire and sulfur rained from heaven and destroyed them all. So will it be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. On that day, let the one who is on the housetop with his goods in the house not come down to take them away. And likewise, let the one who is in the field not turn back. In verse 32, remember Lot's wife. Basically, Jesus explains to them that when judgment falls on the world at his second coming, it will be so swift and so unexpected that people won't even realize that the end is near. People will be living as usual when suddenly they are destroyed. We can imagine, as he mentions Noah, we can imagine the people laughing at Noah at some point while he is building the ark. They don't believe him. They don't see a lick of rain. But then the flood came and it was instant while they were still eating, while they were still drinking, while they were still carrying on with life as usual. But praise God, he even gave them a warning. But they didn't heed that warning, did they? They thought it was a joke. Same thing that we see in the story of Lot's wife. We see something similar happen there, that life is going as usual. Now, that usual that's in Sodom is not the type of usual that we would call usual, but it was still their normal way of life, and they were living it up until the very moment that that fire rained down from heaven and swallowed them up. Finally, Jesus says, remember Lot's wife. 
It's interesting that Lot's wife doesn't even have a name. She's just referred to as Lot's wife. I don't think my wife would be too happy if every time you've seen her, you just said, there's Roman's wife. Right? She'd probably give you a fierce side eye and let you know immediately that I have a name. And that name is Jessica. So um, I just find that interesting that even though this woman didn't even have a name recorded in Scripture, Jesus tells us, remember her. He says, remember Lot's wife. But this story of Lot's wife looking back is so powerful that many of us, that if we don't even know the Bible, we've probably heard this story. So Jesus picked the right person because that story stands out. And we know what Lot's wife did, and we'll get more into that in a moment. But she looked back. And so this morning, we're going to explore some of the dangers of looking back. Looking back at sin. Looking back at something that God has told us to release and to let go. Lord, thank you for this opportunity to speak to your people this morning, Lord God. I pray that you would use me for your glory. Lord, move me out of the way, Lord God. Father, would you please speak the words through me, Father, that your people need to hear this morning, that I needed to hear, Lord God. Father, this message is just as much for me as it is for anyone else. And so, Father, I pray that you would use it, use my preparation, use all of this for your glory here this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So Jesus tells us to remember Lot's wife. And so if we're going to remember Lot's wife, then we probably should go through the story a little bit of Lot's wife and of Lot's family. And that story is found in Genesis chapter 19. But before we get to Genesis chapter 19, in Genesis chapter 18, there's a story about two men or two angels visiting Abraham, and they talk to him about his wife, Sarah, is going to bear him a child, right? And that he'd be the father of many nations and all of these good things, right? That he didn't have to uh, wait and use the son that was illegitimate in order for God's promise to happen. And so these two angels, after we get past that story, these same two men or these same two angels are headed towards Sodom. The Bible says that the sins of Sodom were so grave and so disgusting that God decided that he was going to destroy it. But before he destroyed it, he wanted to send messengers, men, to go look and see if it was just as bad as he had heard it was. And now we know God knew how bad it was. But still, God wanted to put men on the ground and to see how that, that city would treat those men is what I believe. And so as these men are about to head towards Sodom, the scripture says that God said to himself, basically, should I not tell Lot, I mean, not tell Abraham what I'm about to do to the city of Sodom. Now, Abraham is the uncle of Lot. So God tells Abraham what he's about to do, that he's about to destroy that city. And God, in his mercy, has a conversation 
with Abraham about the destruction of Sodom. And Abraham says something to the effect of, God, will you wipe out the righteous even with the wicked? And so he gets into this back and forth conversation with the Lord and he asks God, Lord, if you find 50 people that are righteous in Sodom, will you spare the city? God said, yeah, sure, sure, I'll spare it for 50. He said, what if, what if there's five less? What if there's 45? He said, yeah, I'll spare them for 45. Then he goes on again. What about 40, God? What if you find 40 righteous people there? Will you spare the city? God said, yeah, sure. I'll spare it for 40. Then he jumps to 30. And God said, yeah, sure. Yeah, Lord, let me one more time ask you. Then he jumps to 20 and finally ends up with a nice round number of 10 and says, God, if you find at least 10 righteous people in this city, will you spare it? And God says, yeah. And so when we open chapter 19 of Genesis, what do we see? We learn a lesson right away here. And as I walk through this story in Genesis, I may point out some things. They're not necessarily points of the sermon, but just things that stood out to me as we walk through this story. But we see something very significant. Why are these two men still headed to destroy Sodom? Because there weren't 10 righteous people there. He couldn't even find 10 righteous people in this whole city. And so we opened the book in chapter 19, and we have the two men in the form, the angels in the form of men, coming to the city of Sodom, getting ready to destroy it. When they come to Sodom, they come, through, they come in and Lot is sitting at the gate. Why is Lot sitting at the gate? Because the gate is the place where the movers and shakers of the city would be, where the thinkers, where the politicians, where the businessmen, where the people who had some status would sit at the gate and they would greet people who would come in to the city. And so as they come in, the two men, the two angels come in, Lot immediately seizes upon them and he says, hey, I don't know what it was about them, but it says he bowed down before them and, and be, kind of begged them to come and stay at his house and to have a meal. There had to be something special about these men in order for him to do that. The same thing happened with Abraham earlier in chapter 18, too, by the way. When he saw these two men, these two angels in the form of men, he, too, was struck by them. So maybe it was just the righteousness that was coming off of them. Maybe it was just a feeling. Maybe it was just something about these two men that said to him that they are special. And so he invites them into his house and they refuse. They first refuse and they say, you know what? No, we want to we want to sleep out in the town square. We want to just stay out while we're here, not go in anybody's house. We just want to really get a feel for the city. And so Lot, knowing what city he lived in, knew better than that. So he basically begs them, no, please come home with me. That's like saying, go to the west side of Chicago right now and just stand out on the corner and just relax with the guys that are selling drugs for a little bit. No, not a good idea. You're probably not going to make it back, okay, or at least not with your wallet. And so Lot's like, yeah, come on to my house. Let's have a meal. So finally, 
to him requesting so strongly, the two men or the two angels say, all right, we'll go with you. But look at Genesis 19, verse 4. It says, but before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people to the last surrounded the house. And they called to Lot, where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may know them. So imagine this, Lot brings these men into his house. They eat a meal. And next thing you know, they're beating on his door. His phone's blowing up, text going off, right? If that was today, right? Ringing his bell, yelling, let us in, let us in. We want these men, bring them out to us. We want to know them. Now, we may have heard before, if you haven't, Sodom was guilty of the sin of homosexuality. Sodom was guilty of wanting to lay with other, others of the same sex. And we know that God has forbidden that. God has condemned that in Scripture. And so that was a big reason why destruction was on its way to Sodom. So they're beating this door down, trying to get in and satisfy their lust. Now, something strange happens after this is that Lot steps out of the house, shuts the door behind him, and tries to talk to him. So now remember that Lot is always at the city gate, right? So he knows everybody. These are his buddies. He actually calls them brothers. And he's like, brothers, don't do this. Don't, don't take these men out and, and rape them. Don't do this. These men are guests in my house. And, and, and Lot does something very strange. Lot offers up his daughters to these men. He has two daughters who have never been with a man, and he offers up his daughters. Now, I'm not going to um, give you much conjecture about why Lot may have done that. However, it's striking to me because the Bible calls Lot a righteous man. And Lot being a righteous man, I wouldn't expect a righteous man to do something like that. But maybe that was part of some trickery on Lot's side, is what I'm thinking, because he knew that these men's hearts were for other men. They didn't want a woman. So maybe that was his way of pulling some type of fast one. Right? We know Abraham pulled fast ones, and that's his uncle. Maybe that's what Lot was trying to do, was to pull a fast one, knowing that they would not want his daughters anyway. However, the men are not satisfied with that proposition and that offer. The men want what they want. They want those two men that are in the house, these two new people that came to our city, and we want to know them intimately. And so they tell Lot, stand back. Don't you know that we'll do worse to you than we plan to do to to them? Do you think you can be a judge over us, Lot? They said, this man has come to sojourn or live among us, And he wants to be our judge. And so the angels supernaturally open the door and snatch Lot back inside, shut the door. But now it's still not over. Because these men of Sodom 
are so depraved and so yearning to satisfy the lust in their hearts that they continue to try to get to these men. And so the angels strike them with blindness. They are struck with blindness. But the Bible says that they still wore themselves out trying to get inside of the house. Isn't that something? Wouldn't you think that if you were in the midst of your sin and the commission of doing something you know that God is against and he instantly strikes you with blindness, don't you think you'd stop the thing that you're trying to get at and say, God must be trying to tell me something. I can't see. But they weren't only physically blind, they were spiritually blind. They had a blindness that went deep down inside of them. And we can be blind like that too. We can be blind to things that God is telling us that we need to walk away from, run away from. But our blindness keeps us trudging forward towards this thing that God doesn't want for us anyway. That's the depravity of the hearts of man. And so next, the men, the angels say to Lot, hey, Lot, do you have any family in this city? Because we're about to bring destruction upon it. So we, they give Lot an opportunity to go out and get his family members, gather them together so that they could also be saved along with him. The scripture says that Lot goes to his son-in-laws and he tells them what the angels have told him, that God is about to destroy this city We need to pack our stuff up, and we need to get out of here as fast as we can. But the text says that they thought he was joking. They thought he was jesting about the destruction that was to come. And how many times have we in our own lives not heeded God's warnings, not heeded when God is telling us to run away, to walk away from something, and we take it as a joke because we don't put any feet to our faith, but we continue on in that path that is leading us to destruction. And so those sons-in-laws, they eventually perished there too. They stayed because they didn't believe. The text says, as the morning dawned in verse 15 of chapter 19, The angels urged Lot, saying, Up, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, lest you be swept away in the punishment of the city. And verse 16 is very significant. It says, But he lingered. Lot lingered. So the men seized him and his wife and his two daughters by the hand, the Lord being merciful to him, and they brought him out and set him outside of the city. Even though Lot is a righteous man, he still lingered. He was still attached to some of the things, some of the luxuries of Sodom. His family was lollygagging, like, let me get my Jordans off the shelf. And let me get my, let me get my t-shirt that I love so much. And, oh, let me grab the cat. And he's like, no, No, get out of here. But Lot lingered. So that's a warning to us, right? 
that even this righteous man who had not committed the sins of Sodom, he still had his heart attached in some way to that place. And we can be so much like that. Even though we have gotten away from Sodom, we can find ourselves also lingering around those old ways, old thoughts, old habits, old behaviors and desires. Verse 17 says, and as they brought them out, one said, escape for your life. Do not look back or stop anywhere in the valley. Escape to the hills lest you be swept away. So they get a command, don't look back. God's saying the same thing to us this morning, don't look back. God tells them that expressly, explicitly. But check this out. In verse 19, it says, Behold, your servant has found favor in your sight. So this is Lot talking to the angels. Behold, your servant has found favor in your sight, and you have shown me great kindness in saving my life. But I cannot escape to the hills, lest the disaster overtake me and I die. Behold, this city is near, near enough to flee to, and it is a little one. Let me escape there. Is it not a little one? And my life will be saved? If God tells you to go somewhere, don't you think he knows best where you should be going? God told Lot to head for the hills. But what did Lot do? Lot wanted to bargain again, right? I don't want to go to the hills because I'm going to get killed or something in the mountains. I think my way is better. I think I know better which way to go. So instead of going to the hills like you told me, God, I probably, you would think you wouldn't even question it. God said, go to the mountains. Go to the mountains, right? But that's the depravity of our hearts. That's the wickedness of man, right? But Lot says, you know what? Let me go to this little city right here, Zoar. Now, this is interesting. This is not my own personal observation. I actually heard another preacher mention this. He said, that Lot wanted to stop in Zoar so that he could still be close enough to Sodom in case the judgment didn't fall. Mm. He wanted to still be close enough to his old friends, to his old buddies, to the life that he knew there in Sodom, just in case God relents and doesn't destroy the city. Can't we be that way as well? God has rescued us. God has called us out. God has separated us. He has given us a new life, a new heart. But yet we still want to be close to the action. We still want to be just close enough where I might be able to go back and party a little bit with those friends. That I might be able to go back and enjoy that life that I once enjoyed before. Verse 21 says, he said to him, behold, I grant you this favor also, that I will not overthrow the city of which you have spoken. Escape there quickly, for I can do nothing till you arrive there. Therefore, the name of the city was called Zoar. And so now let us zoom in on verses 23 through 26. Verse 23, the sun had risen on the earth when Lot came to Zoar. Then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah 
sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven. And he overthrew those cities and all the valleys and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground. But Lot's wife behind him looked back and she became a pillar of salt. Don't look back. Don't look back. Here are three lessons that I think we can quickly get from Lot's wife and what she did. First, Lot's wife lingered behind. Lot's wife lingered behind. There was still an attachment to that old way of life inside of her heart. And so Lot's wife lingered behind. When Jesus told them, remember Lot's wife in Luke 17, 32, he is essentially saying that as his return draws near, as we see things happening that he warned us about, we need to be in a constant state of readiness. As we watch this world go continually towards more and more wickedness that will ultimately end in destruction. We should not have hearts like Lot's wife, who was still attached to the things God deemed worthy of judgment. Jesus is coming back. And so we need to be in a constant state of readiness. What we're talking about this morning is actually going into a fancy word that they call eschatology. So this is talking about the end times. There's some parallels here that that have to do with the end times. And now I don't know everything about eschatology in the end times, and you don't need to know everything about eschatology in the end times. But one thing you need to know is that from the moment Jesus left, his return is always imminent meaning that we need to be in a constant state of readiness, a constant state of looking and knowing that at any moment he could crack the sky and that flash of lightning will come. If we don't know anything else, if we know to get ready, we know enough about eschatology. Lot's wife, the second thing that she did, Lot's wife doubted God's warning that was sent through the angels. She doubted God's warning that was sent through the angels. In Genesis 19:17, the angels clearly warned them to flee the city immediately without haste. Don't look back. Now we may have a tendency to look at Lot's wife and think, how stupid could she be? But the truth is, we do what she did all the time. We doubt God's warnings. We doubt what he said. And we can find ourselves looking back. Have you ever heard of a besetting sin? A besetting sin is one of the sins that seems to always come back around. A besetting sin are those sins that you have prayed over, that you have cried over, and that still you find yourself being tempted and drawn towards those things. And I believe we all have that in some way or another. Some things, when you get saved, God just takes the taste out of your mouth immediately, and you, whoo, praise the Lord, I'm free of this. But it seems some things linger. It seems that some sins or proclivities of our heart still linger. And we have to fight by the power of Jesus Christ to overcome them. 
The third thing that Lot's wife did was that she looked back behind her. She looked at the life, the comfort, the fun that she left behind. Here's what Spurgeon says. Spurgeon says, after lingering and doubting, she then looked. She did look back and thus proved that she had sufficient presumption in her heart to defy God's command and risk her all to give a lingering love glance at the condemned and guilty world. By that glance, she perished. Wow. How great of a warning and an example to us to remember Lot's wife. Let us stop taking glances back at the life that we think we miss. Because I tell you, that is just as empty as it was when you were there. It hasn't gotten better. In fact, it's gotten worse. Let's not look back behind us longingly for a life that Jesus has freed us from. Here's another observation that Spurgeon makes. Spurgeon saw another tragedy in the story of Lot's wife. That is that she almost made it out. Doom befell her at the gates of Zoar. Oh, if I must be damned, let it be with the mass of the ungodly, having always been one of them. But to get up to the very gates of heaven and to perish there will be a most awful thing. Mm. To walk this Christian life, to be around the believers, to taste and see that God is good, and then throw it all away at the end of the race. Now, we know that if we're saved, we're sealed, right? So we're not getting into that territory. However, we can certainly forfeit many rewards and honors, and we can shipwreck our lives, and we can do some some grave things if we look back. We don't want to do all of this and then look back and be destroyed. There's a theme as I close this up, there's a theme that runs through these two passages that we looked at this morning uh, in Luke 17 and also in Genesis 19. The theme is that we've seen in all of these stories, including Noah and the ark, we see God giving a warning, right? We see God warn folks and give them a chance to escape. We also see God delivering his people before the judgment falls. And then we ultimately see God destroy the wicked in righteous judgment. I've recently had an opportunity to see this pattern somewhat played out before my eyes. As some of you may or may not know, I recently lost a friend of mine, a dear friend of mine who lived in Chicago that I knew From back in the day, I praised the Lord with this man in gospel choir in high school. And I also ran the streets with this man and was a fool and wasn't looking towards God. I lived both of those lives with this man. But the Lord being merciful to me, he gave me a warning 
years and years and years ago. And that warning brought me here. See, but my buddy didn't leave. He stayed, and there became a period of time where he continued on in the sin that I was also a part of at one time. He didn't stop. He continued on. But eventually, something happened in his life, and he got up out of the dirt, out of the mud, and he fixed himself up. Listen, I said he fixed himself up. I didn't say God fixed him up. I said he fixed himself up. He got up out of the dirt. He put himself in school. He got himself in treatment. He recovered from his addiction. And for 10 years, this brother, this friend, I call him brother as in my brother of the flesh, this friend of mine, for 10 years, he was a programmer for a downtown company. He started to make good money. He had gotten his life in order, so to speak. And then something happened. He encountered some hard times. And I'm not going to speak to whether he knew the Lord or not, because like I said, there was a time where we praised God together. That's in his hands. But the way that he lived his life doesn't give me comfort in knowing where he may be today. But something happened in his life, and he looked back. He looked back at the old neighborhood. He looked back at the drugs that he once loved so much. And he perished in the midst of his sin. He perished in the midst of his sin. And as I stood here last week asking God, Lord, what do you want to say to your people? What's most appropriate this morning, God? Usually it takes me a long time for something to come to mind that God would want me to speak on. But right away, God said in my heart, don't look back. And as I thought about that, as I thought about not looking back, I couldn't help but think of Lot's wife. And that's why Jesus told us to remember Lot's wife. So I ask you this morning, what are you looking back at that God has freed you from? That God is warning you about? That God is telling you to flee from? I want you to know this morning that whatever it is, It's still empty. It's still worthless. It still has nothing to offer you but death and destruction. Don't look back. To the Christian, don't look back. There's nothing there for you. Even my time there in Chicago was so uneasy to me. Not that I was so worried about me doing something wrong but I just didn't belong anymore. He said, don't look back. This isn't you anymore. This is not what I have for you, my son. So Christian, keep your eyes on your deliverer, on Jesus Christ, and go to the mountain. Don't stop in Zoar. Go to the mountain because God is calling you to the mountain. In Luke 9, verse 32, Jesus said to him, no one puts his hand to the plow and looks back 
is fit for the kingdom of God. Mm. Let us not put our hand to the plow, church, and look back. There's a song that arose um, as I thought about this message, and I'm going to close us out with this if I can sing it without falling to pieces here. I'm quite emotional this morning, especially with the baptisms. I've been shedding small tears ever since I heard those testimonies. Oh, oh my God, thank you, Jesus, for what you're doing there. Thank you. Even I'm thinking of the testimony. I'm thinking of Pearl's testimony and saying, I still wanted to be like I used to be. I didn't want to come towards God. I still craved those. I still want, I was having fun in that. But look, to you two young ladies, don't look back. Don't look back. You don't have to. God has given you his power to overcome. The song that came to mind is I have decided to follow Jesus. Have you decided to follow Jesus today? Have you decided that you don't want to look back? I have decided to follow Jesus. I have decided to follow Jesus. I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. No turning back. The world behind me, the cross before me. The world behind me, the cross before me. The world behind me, the cross before me. No turning back, no turning back. Though none go with me, still I will follow. Though none go with me, I still will follow. Though none go with me, still will follow. No turning back, no turning back. My cross I'll carry till I see Jesus. My cross I'll carry till I see Jesus. My cross I'll carry till I see Jesus. No turning back, no turning back. Last one. Will you decide now to follow Jesus? Will you decide now to follow Jesus? Will you decide now follow Jesus? No turning back. No turning back. At this time, I will ask our Worship team to come forward. Thank you. God bless. Why don't we just take a time of prayer here to personalize that message. Father, as you've been speaking to us through this story there in the Bible, identify to us what our 
tendency is, what our pattern is, what our weakness is, what sin that we are prone to go back to. And then why don't you right now, where you're at, just confess that. Repent of that. Turn away from that sin. Turn to God, asking for His grace, thanking Him for this warning. Let us do that right now. And then if you've never trusted Christ, but you're ready to turn your back on the world, on yourself, on your sin. God sent His Son to die for you, to to take your sins. Turn from your sins. Turn to God. Place your trust. Transfer your trust from yourself onto what Jesus has done for you. Ask for the gift of eternal life. Lord, we thank you for giving us this clear word today, not only in the scriptures, but in a personal testimony. Now receive our worship as we sing. In Jesus' name, amen.